Mm-hmm. I'm about to jump right into liquor. I'm excited I am because it's it's afternoon. We got to jump into the liquor for sure. Yeah. It's it's been a stressful week for everybody. Yeah. Everybody's got to unwind a little bit, you know. Just relax, chill out. I brought the George Washington whiskey because I figure we're going to talk a little bit about the um, some of the drug decriminalization that happened over the election. And I think it's worth pointing out that our founders were all, you know, purveyors of intoxicants. You know, George Washington owned a whiskey distillery. And I have a bottle here of his original recipe that he had the rye whiskey that he made. Uh, you know, it's it's made more recently than that, obviously. But the recipe is the same. Bought it at Mount Vernon. Overpriced. Not that good. But I thought we could drink it in celebration of... <laughs> democracy and uh, presidents and decriminalizing intoxicants. Well, I'm glad that whiskey, I think it's the same recipe they use. So I'm glad, you know, 250 some years that America's been around. I'm glad we've improved the recipe. And I like that Mount Vernon stays with tradition, though. And I keeps... feel sorry for people who had to dr- get drunk in the 18th century because clearly their their liquor was not as good as ours. I like to. They didn't have the choice we had. No, they didn't have the freedom. Choices. We yeah. I like to think, too, that when we were writing. And signing the Declaration of Independence, that they they, didn't, they they were drunk and high smoking hemp. So that's the way I like to envision it. They probably were. Because smoking some hemp and drinking whatever beer, whiskey, rye that they had. It's a good idea. Just sign it. Send it to them. <laughs> so <laughs> let's America pour a little was of this. I'll give us just a small quantity because I don't think you're going to want to drink a lot of it. But. Maybe this is what the, I do need to polish off the bottle though at some point. Get it out of my liquor cabinet. I feel like I keep thinking you're gonna run. I've tried to provide a good amount of. Well, you've done a great job. The drinking, but I feel like you always got something new. Well, I need to. I need to make a run. I'm running low. When so, you make a run, are you thinking buying one or two bottles? Or are you like, are you gonna walk out of there with like a cart? Like, I'm well, I don't. Ha- I don't have a car, so I tend to buy what oh. I can carry. So I don't buy more than a couple bottles. In college, we used to pull a trick. When someone got a new apartment, we would throw a stock the bar party where everyone had to bring their own bottle. But Very you had smart. to leave it, and then you'd have like six to eight un- half-drunken bottles that would could last the apartment a good uh, amount of time. For my 27th birthday, I had a scotch party where I said, everybody bring me a bottle of scotch for my birthday. And I ended up getting the second worst hangover I've ever had. <laughs> um, and it was it was bad, but I drank a lot of scotch. Is and I had a lot of extra scotch the next day. What drink. month is your birthday? Annika? It's in December. It's coming right up. I think we should do another party like that. Oh, maybe let's pay, do it. Maybe pick a different one, but I'll, yeah. I want to come. Oh, totally. I don't know what I'm doing for my birthday this year, so I'd love to hang out with you. That'd be fun. Awesome. Maybe we should also record on your birthday. We'll make a whole day out of it. Okay. We can have some I'm kind down. of special festivities on yeah. set. I usually usually don't have anything spe- uh, special going on for it, so I'm totally down. Let's do it. Love it. Cheers. Cheers and get let's kick this off. Yeah, that smell hit me first. I had a pause. It's strong. There's not a lot to it. No. But cheers to you, George. All right. You slide W. Well, I, I thought it was interesting because we've talked a lot about the presidential election, and there's other elections going on, other votes happening. And, uh, you know, people say libertarians never win anything. Uh, I think we did pretty well, although not in the presidential contest and not in any of the, like, you know, Congress or Senate contests. But in terms of ballot initiatives, I think libertarians came off pretty well this year because uh, the District of Columbia basically decriminalized, not entirely decriminalized, but basically decriminalized uh, psychedelic plants. 
Uh, they said it's going to be the the lowest law enforcement priority, which is effectively decriminalizing it. And then um, a lot of states decriminalized or legalized marijuana, either medical or recreational. And Oregon famously decriminalized all drugs, um, including heroin, cocaine, all those things, hard drugs, which I really thought was years and years away. I'm very surprised to see it happen this fast. And it's going to be an interesting experiment to see how they deal with it. And you were uh, making an important point about federalism that I wanted you to make on the show. Yeah, I saw the decriminalization out in Oregon. I thought, like, whoa, the only one I could think of was the Portugal uh, situation where they decriminalized everything years ago, which Free the People did a video on. We did. Yeah, you should go watch that video. We'll put a a link to it. Yeah, we should link to it. Trey, make a note. (laughs) I'm kidding, Trey. But... um, I come from the very conservative, I'm Catholic, practicing Catholic, so a lot of my culture is very, you know, moralistic. I don't know what you want to call it. So being the antagonist, I posted about it and used it to talk about federalism because I knew I would get a little bit of a reaction from the people that I'm connected to on Facebook. But it's true. It's federalism. Oregon gets to try something that people from my side, that I am, my culture, would look at and think this is crazy. Society's going to collapse. Everyone's going to do drugs. What a terrible idea. And they get to try it. And maybe we're right. And maybe it is, you know, my, you know, where I've come from, maybe that that's correct. Maybe it'll just be a giant dumpster fire. Um, and if it is, fine. Only Oregon's affected and they can fix their problems. And the other 49 states can sit back and thank God they didn't do it. But maybe it works. Maybe instead of the drug war and imprisoning nonviolent criminals and spending countless amounts, billions and billions of dollars chasing down nonviolent crimes and flushing that money down the toilet, maybe we're going to find a way that actually can reduce drug usage. So it's worth a try. And if they succeed, then the other states can also take note and make decisions and maybe even make it better when they put it in legislation. Yeah, I expect for there to be a little bit of a learning curve to go along with it because I think there was a problem in um, in the Netherlands in Amsterdam because they had a lot of decriminalization. And it, because it was the only place that did it, you get all these people coming in from other countries to be like, yeah, we're going to go crazy. We're going to do all the drugs. And that's probably the way it's going to happen uh, mm. in Oregon initially. People are going to think, ah, oh, I can do whatever I want here. Let's go nuts. Um, but over time, I think that it will everybody will chill out a little bit about it and i think it'll be more like alcohol and the other drugs that people legally do nicotine things like that and some people will abuse it and and have their lives ruined by it and some people will use it responsibly and be okay uh but regardless they won't be going to prison for it which i think is a good thing i think a lot i mean i don't know i'm not an expert in this area so if someone who's watching has studied this or actually works with people that are addicts um and has expertise you know certainly can comment below and correct me but I imagine there's a lot of people that are honestly addicted to these substances and would like help, but fear due to the laws keeps them from seeking that help. And to maybe decriminalize it shifts the culture like, hey, I can actually raise my hand and get help now without as much fear. I went to a Cato seminar on this and they talked a lot about this. And I think it's very true is that, yeah, as long as you keep it in the shadows and illegal, people are afraid to get help. They're afraid to admit to anybody what they do and end up really going down a dark path. And if you make it a little bit more out in the open, you can have these treatment centers that are perfectly legal and they let people come in without judgment. And they say, you know, we're going to help you get off this. We're going to help fix you. And I think it's a lot more healthy in that regard and lets people do methadone clinics and stuff like that to get off heroin. And, you know, if if they're not afraid of being thrown in jail for it, they're much more likely to get help and and learn how to use it in a way, if if they want to continue using it, learn how to use it in a way that's not going to ruin their lives. Or if they want to stop using it, get help on how to learn how to stop using it. The same way we have Alcoholics Anonymous and things like that. And there's always that small segment of the population that doesn't want help. They're going to be addicted. And yeah, they're probably going to, you know, something terrible will happen because of their addiction. 
and you have to almost be not okay with it, but accept that's the reality of an imperfect world that we all live in. Yeah, and I would rather people have the freedom to do that and learn from their mistakes than be put in prison for it because I just don't think it's good. And then the other thing that, that is important to talk about drug decriminalization, I think, that no people don't think about. Everyone just thinks about the users. Um, there's a lot of, of collateral damage that comes from cr uh, criminalizing drugs and making it uh, fighting the drug war. You get the gangs, you know, you get the cartels, you get all these uh, extra extra legal entities or illegal entities that, you know, if you're outside the law, the only way you have of settling disputes is with violence, essentially. You can't mm -hmm. go to a court to settle your disputes. So you get these gangs that are shooting each other in the streets and not just each other. You know, you'll have people get hit by stray bullets. You have people make uh, their neighborhoods turn really dangerous because of all the drug dealing that goes on in their neighborhood. And it, it hurts a lot of innocent people who have nothing to do with the drug trade, who don't use the drugs, who don't have anything to do with it. But they are now living in crime infested neighborhoods with lots of, you know, random shootings and stuff. And nobody wants that. That's bad. And so my major motivation for wanting these things decriminalized is I feel bad for those people who they're perfectly innocent. They just want to live their lives. But because of the drug war, they're embroiled in this this situation where violence is all around them and it's really scary do you think that if let's just you know create a pretend world if Amer if america ended the drug war or maybe that entails decriminalizing everything do you think that would undermine and disrupt the drug cartel and all the drug violence in mexico and central and south america absolutely i mean so much of the drug cartels in those states are dependent on american business and if you're not buying it from a drug cartel in mexico you can buy it from you know, Johnson and Johnson or, you know, uh, like one of the cigarette companies, Philip Morris or something, you'd buy it from them instead, instead of these Mexican cartels, you know, it's fine. Not a problem. So potentially, I mean, that's a pretty heavy subject. And maybe I don't want to go down that rabbit hole right now on this conversation, but I mean, that could be a, that's a sobering thought to have that potentially all the, a, a majority or a large portion of the violence that innocent people suffer through in Central and South America could be a directly correlated or there could be causation linked to our policies in the United States. I absolutely think that's the case. And it would be it would be good to see less of that because those are those are terrible things that those people have to yeah. suffer through in those countries. And that you know, if you get rid of those illegal um, you know, criminal gangs that are that are profiting off of the illegality of drugs in America people could have their their lives greatly improved. We did an interview with uh, Elena Toledo from Honduras, and she was talking about how the drug, the drug, not just the drug trade, but the drug war that that fosters the drug trade has completely destroyed her country, and it's pretty bad. Um, so yeah, Portugal is a great example. They've they decriminalized everything, and not only did the violence and the the crime go down, but actual drug use went down as well which is to me a secondary goal, but it's it's a good goal. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah, I'm yeah. from people, the culture that I come out of and the people that I, you know, you know relate to and um, associate with primarily, um, when they see these drugs, they view them very much as um, a moral degradation, degradation, and they don't want people to use them. And I agree with them. I think, you know, addiction and these drugs that, you know, they separate us from reason when we're high on them. But I, but I also say whenever you put government in there to be the arbiter of morality and say you cannot use this and they're willing to use force to stop people, yeah, you lose the argument. And I think the only way you can win, I argue with people that I come from, is the only way we can win the moral ar argument and convince people not to do these drugs is to get government out of the picture. Well, it's worth pointing out as well that the creation of these drugs in the first place resulted from their illegality. 
you know, we used to have like heroin was was famously a, a Bayer aspirin brand name. Um, it was something that people took for headaches and stuff. Um, laudanum used to be big. Uh, cocaine used to be in Coca-Cola um, when it was legal. And there were there were addicts for sure, the way that there's addicts to alcohol now and the way that there's addicts to nicotine now. But it was much less potent. It was much more of a mild substance. Just to give you a little, little kick, a little pick-me-up, yeah. you know, it wasn't to take over your whole life. But when you have things that are illegal, you have to smuggle them. And it's hard to smuggle big, bulky you know, kind of things that are not very potent. And it's easier to smuggle if you concentrate them down into as, as powerful and as small of a per- package as you can possibly get. You can make a lot more money that way because you have to get it across borders and pass border agents and stuff like that and make sure the cops don't find it. So things like the, the crazy grade heroin that exists now and the fentanyl and all that stuff that's killing people through overdoses, those specifically were created in order to circumvent the, the law enforcement. And so I don't know if there's putting I don't know if it's possible to put the genie back in the bottle on those things. But uh, hopefully, you know, if if these drugs become a recreational thing enjoyed by middle class people, they're not going to want something that's going to maybe kill them. They're going to want something that they can get a little bit of a buzz off of and then go about their everyday lives. There's, you know, used to be all these ether addicts as well. They were completely functional ether addicts. They are morphine addicts. You know, they take this stuff, they go to work and nobody even knew they had a habit. And it's not good to have the habit. I'm not trying to excuse that, but it's better than dying from it. It's yeah. better than taking so much it literally poisons you and kills you. And I, I hope that if we start decriminalizing things and legalizing them, that the potency will drop to meet market demand of people who don't want the most crazy potent thing in the world. They want something that's still just going to give them a little edge. My It reminds me of a story of my favorite professor in college, a uh, history professor, Vietnam vet, just grizzled guy, rolled his own cigarettes. Um not entirely sure. Not entirely sure how appropriate the story is, but he used to tell us that his grandma was addicted to this drink called the Pink Lady, and its main ingredient was opium. And I guess the point of this drink was for younger women during their ladies' days to relieve the pain and the discomfort. But he's like, my grandma was ninety years old, still drinking the Pink Lady, but yeah, you know, it was kind of fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, you hear about people like in South America chewing coca leaves. You know, uh, everything I've heard from people who have done that is like, it's like caffeine. It makes you feel great. You know, you're fine. You you get to enjoy your your day, and then you go about your business. Yeah, there's that. But ancient, you don't like you don't have a heart attack yeah. from chewing on a coca leaf the way you would from potentially snorting cocaine. I'm thinking about River Phoenix, who, like, I think he did cocaine once and immediately had a heart attack and died. You know, that's that's scary stuff. And having it more raw and more natural and more accessible, I think, is a lot healthier to, for people than having these crazy concentrated substances that are just trying to get under the radar so that you can, uh, you know, circumvent law enforcement. There's that famous uh, Maryland basketball player uh, like Lenny Bias, um, who was drafted third overall by the Boston Celtics and was supposed to be the second coming to Michael Jordan. And on draft night, he snorted a line of a very long line of cocaine and passed away. And that was a, you know, a, that changed the boss. The Boston Celtics had a terrible season before <laughs> they just drafted this. That right there is reason enough. Yeah. We got to help the Boston Celtics out. So, yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of, I remember playing basketball growing up, just my dad telling me that story about how he was supposed to be better than Michael Jordan, some thought, but not so much. He made a terrible decision that night. Yeah. But it's not only drug legalization that was a a libertarian winner on the ballots. I I was very surprised to see California passed a few ballot initiatives that seems to go very against the Californian ethos. And I was very happy to see they, uh, you know, they famously kind of banned. uh, They didn't ban it, but they they regulated Uber and Lyft and ride sharing services to the extent that it was pretty much impossible for them to operate in that state because they had to pay all these benefits to their employees and they they couldn't make it economically work. They repealed that. 
And now uh, Uber is going to be able to hire contract workers uh, the same way they do in most other states. And you'll have less expensive uh, ride-sharing apps in California. And you're going to preserve that business, that innovative business. And I think that's really awesome. And they also uh, got rid of their affirmative action policies, which I've always been against affirmative action policies because I uh, I have the old-fashioned, the now old-fashioned belief that a colorblind society should be the goal, that we should judge people based on the content of their character rather than the color of their skin, which is the Martin Luther King speech. Uh, and affirmative action doesn't do that. It says we're going to give you a preference based on the color of your skin or we're going to hinder you based on the color of your skin in the case of Asians, which no one ever talks about. The Asians really get disadvantaged in these type of uh, laws and just judge people based on merit, which I think is a lot better way to do it. And I'm really surprised and pleased that California is rolling that back and hopefully we can have a more uh, individualistic society there. Do you think... Like, it's kind of amazing that, like, I'd love to hear your perspective. Like, California, we make fun of it as, like, the most, you know, backwards, you know, they are literally managing themselves into ruin. They're the most, you know, status society, I guess a libertarian would put it. But when you actually put, instead of putting personalities and politicians on the ballot, if you actually put the issues on the ballot, people vote alarmingly pro-freedom. I'm not alarmed by it, but I'm uh, pleased. Yeah, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's surpri- I'm surprised. Um yeah, I don't know. Um, it's interesting. I, it depends on the issue, I suppose, because I, I was very surprised to see both of those happen. Of course, Florida passed a $15 an hour minimum wage tray. So all the all the goodwill Florida has uh, all the goodwill Florida has won in my heart for their uh, their lenience on the COVID lockdowns has started evaporated by the $15 an hour minimum wage. So that was an issue that was put on the ballot that people voted for. So I don't know. And the like, so Trump and kind Fitz. of approaching a more direct democracy approach if you put every issue on the ballot. And I'm pleased the way it worked out in California, but it doesn't always work out. That's true. And it seems like Trump and $15 minimum wage goes hand in hand in Florida because that, that's just an interesting correlation there. Yeah, I was surprised. Uh, that, yeah, Trump's nationalism might play friendly with $15 minimum wage. Do not try to run with that. And I want to, like, in case people haven't heard the argument, I want to, like, briefly outline why I don't think the minimum wage is a good thing. Everyone thinks, well, we should pay workers more. It would be nice if they had higher salaries. And fine, I, I understand that point of view. But the, the minimum wage outlaws uh, employment of low of uh, low productive workers, workers who don't produce very much. And workers who don't produce very much tend to be in racial minorities. They tend to be immigrants. They tend to be young. They tend to be low educated. And if you're not allowed to, well, if you're the only way you can hire someone as a business profitably is if you're paying them less than they are producing for you. If someone contributes $10 an hour in profits to you or in revenue to you and you pay them $15 an hour, you're losing money hiring them. So you should fire them. Uh, it's just impossible. It's just a, a law of economics. You can't hire people for more than they're worth uh, in terms of their productivity. And so the, what the minimum wage does, it says you have to pay this, this amount to people but if they don't produce that much, then you just can't hire them. And there's lots of people out there who are not capable because of their lack of education, because of their lack of maybe English skills, things like that. They're not capable of producing $15 an hour worth of revenue for their employer. So they just can't be hired. It's basically forbidding them. It's it's cutting off the lower rungs of the ladder of employment. And it's really disadvantaging people who really need jobs and really need to be able to, to get experience and get job skills that they can then and get contacts that they can then leverage into a higher wage later on. But if you don't let them get that first foot in the door, they're never going to go anywhere. They're just going to be on welfare their whole lives. And that's the problem with minimum wage is that it cuts off this ability for people who really don't have any skills to get their foot in the door, start learning some skills, start making some contacts and start working their way up the ladder. Instead, they're just said, no, you can't hire them because the only way you can hire them is if you're paying them more than they're worth. And no one's going to do that. And people who advocate for a higher minimum wage, 
they typically take it from looking at the um, employer and saying the employer is not paying a just wage. You know, he, there's a social justice issue to it. You know, people are subservient to them and it's, you know, somehow it's a violation of human rights to maybe even take it that far. But they never look at it the other perspective. When you say you must pay someone this much, you're also saying you cannot work for less right. than this much. What if myself... As I want to, you, I want to work for you, and I, I would like to work for eight dollars an hour, and you're willing to pay me eight dollars an hour, but Mr. Government, man from the government over here, is holding, you know, the hypothetical gun to your head, saying you must pay him ten dollars, and you know, you can't pay that, and I'm willing to work for less. We're stuck, and we. Yeah, they, people think there's this binary choice where it's like either you're going to get paid eight dollars an hour, or you're going to get paid ten dollars an hour, and they say, well, ten is better, but that's not the choice. The choice is either you're going to get paid eight dollars an hour, or you're going to get paid zero dollars an hour. And I think eight is better than zero, personally. I don't know if my math is right on that, but it seems to me like eight is better than zero. Yeah, we never look at it, I guess, is that what you consider as an employee, would you call them almost the consumer side of it a little bit in that transaction? Well, um, like employment is just a, it's just an agreement between yeah. two people for mutually for mutual benefit, you know? You say, I, wanted, I want some money, and you say, I want a service, and you negotiate, and you come up with the, the contract yeah. where you work for each other. It's a, it's a transaction like any other. And having it's the same as a price control on a good, you know, say you can't sell a pack of gum for less than $10. No one's going to buy packs of gum, you know. Um, and so I don't see any reason why a third party should intervene in an agreement that two people have made. And, you know, me as the employee and you as the employer or the other way around. We say we're, we're both happy with this situation. We're willing to do it. And then you have a government employee come in and say, no, you can't do that. It's illegal. You know, and prevent it. I don't understand why that's a good thing. And everyone acts like, you know, there's this view that the employer has all the power and the employee has none of the power. And the reason for that is because of labor regulations that make it hard to uh, get jobs, you know, that make it make jobs more scarce. Uh, And when there's high unemployment, it's a problem. You know, when there's high unemployment, it's hard to it's hard to get a job. But if you relax these labor regulations and you have close to full employment, then suddenly the power shifts because the employer needs employees to do their job. Like I want to start a business. I need to hire people. And there are no people because everyone's already got a job. So in that case, then the, the employee has all the power, all the negotiating power. And so it, it, there's not this inherent benefit that corporations have or that companies have or that employers have over their employees. It's, it's it's just as easily the case in a free market where you don't have all these regulations that increase unemployment, where the negotiation is more evil or not more evil, more equal, or either even on the employee's side of things, and they're able to negotiate a better contract for themselves. And so I think that the people have this false notion that the employers inherently necessarily have all the power and therefore they need to be restrained by government. But that's not really the case. It can certainly happen where a company can lose some of its best employees and go under and they can't afford to lose those employees. They have to keep them. And so in that case, the employee has the power in the negotiation. Yeah, I mean, in my industry, my day job is I work in the technology sector. It is extremely costly to actually hire someone and then train them all the way up. So you really want to make the right hire. So you're always trying to solve the knowledge problem on trying to figure out who's the best hire to make because you have to at least invest six months in. And if that you get to six months and they, you don't work out, you're actually behind a year now because you have to go find someone, yeah. train them another six months. You've wasted six months on the first guy. Like that's a huge cost. So. Right. And, and especially in a situation where you have more small businesses and fewer of these like conglomerates, um, which would be the case if we had fewer, you know, regulations that prevent competition, like licensing and uh, all these permitting and regulation and things like that. If you had a lot of our small businesses competing, 
the competition is a lot fiercer and you really got to keep your good employees because if you lose them, the next company over that's doing a better job is going to take you over and knock you out. So, But when you have these conglomerates like Amazon where Amazon has basically been given on a tray this enormous amount of business because all the re- retail stores have been shut down because of COVID, said, oh, everybody has to order things online now, um, that gives the employer a lot of power because there's no competition. There's nowhere else for employees to go. And I know people hate Amazon and, and I understand why. But uh, Am- like Amazon's been given all this this government granted power. I just read this thing about uh, how the country of Wales and the United Kingdom they've just, they've designated essential and non-essential products that can be sold under COVID. So they said, well, if you need to buy food, you can buy food, but you can't buy clothing. If you need to buy uh, you know medicine, you can buy that, but you can't buy furniture. And so stores are having to rope off their their aisles that sell other things like department stores and only sell certain things. Well, who's that helping? It's helping Amazon because now if you want clothing, if you want furniture, you go to Amazon and you buy it there instead of going to your local shop. And so it's going to just greatly increase the market power of these big companies. And that increases their power over the labor market. That increases their power over employees. And that drives wages down. So if you really want higher wages, you shouldn't pass a minimum wage. You should try to get rid of these regulations that prevent small companies from competing with big companies. So more competition drives up wages because then absolutely you're fighting over the best employer employee. Mm-hmm. And you're going to try to you know coax them over to your, your company. Yeah, absolutely. So best way to do that is call them up and offer them... 25% more. Interesting. The other ballot initiative I noticed that was pretty good um, up in Michigan was Michigan passed uh, a ballot measure that actually now it better secures your digital privacy. Good. Um, it requires, you know, it puts in writing the requirement of a warrant, which I thought the Fourth Amendment uh, covered, <laughs> but I guess not. So I was a little confused by that. I was like, I thought we already had this with the Fourth Amendment. Maybe not, but at least, you know, we'll reemphasize it now. Um, but I thought that was a big um, step in the right direction, especially in an area where I think in the digital age and big tax on everyone's person mind that data privacy and your data maybe is a property right. Like that helps at least move it the needle in the right direction. Absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, the digital age has thrown such a monkey wrench into the privacy sphere because the Fourth Amendment talks about your personal papers, you know. And nobody has papers anymore. They have files. And so the courts have had to kind of interpret how to apply that to the modern age. And, you know, it's pretty obvious to me that, you know, the the digital papers count as papers for for purposes of the Fourth Amendment. But the courts haven't been unanimous on this and it's been kind of dodgy. And so seeing more of those type of things is great because you don't want all these kind of warrantless wiretaps going on, all this scooping up of cell phone data that the NSA has been doing. It's pretty bad. So I'm glad to hear Michigan is working on that. Now, I thought I want to go back real quick to yeah. the one point you had where early on I'm thinking like, wow, when you put these issues on the ballot, even in, you know, a, pro- a progressive, you know, fairyland that California seems fancies itself, people seem to make the right decisions. But contrary to that point, you pointed out Florida here is jacking up the minimum wage where they yeah. also overwhelmingly voted for Trump over Biden and the left. So do you think there's a good balance to strike between this direct democracy where we're just going to vote on the laws on the ballots versus sending representatives or experts, I guess, people who know a little bit more right. than us to go represent us? Like, Is there a healthy balance between the two? Have you thought about that? I haven't given it much thought, but I think there probably is. Like, you definitely don't want every issue on the ballot because things are complicated and the people aren't necessarily going to know anything about it. And depending on the way it's worded on the ballot, which can very drastically influence how people uh, vote on these things, you know. Uh, I think the the uh, affirmative action thing in California, they use the word diversity a lot in that. 
And so that's what got them to vote for it was the way it was worded with diversity. So it's easy to manipulate the vote, but based on the way you word the ballot initiatives. So it's potentially dangerous if you put issues that are not well understood and are maybe worded badly on a ballot. Uh, to direct democracy. But on the other hand, there are certain things that are beneficial to the entrenched political class that go onto the ballot uh, that are, would not ordinarily be on a ballot that they'd vote for in Congress. Uh, things probably like foreign policy is a good example where the generals and the military industrial complex, the contractors all want that to keep going on. I bet if you put things like wars on ballots, you get less wars. Like, hey, let's have a ballot initiative. Should we have war with Iran? I think that would get defeated. I, maybe I'm being optimistic there, but I can't imagine Americans directly yeah. voting for war with Iran or war with Yemen or war with Saudi Arabia or whatever whatever country it is, Afghanistan. Um, after 9-11, they obviously would have voted for war, but in most cases, I don't think they would. Uh, so that might be better. Uh, it depends on to what extent the political class has a vested interest in in pursuing these things versus the, what the popular sentiment is about them. Yeah, foreign policy seems to be the one area that we as American citizens have the least amount of influence over. Like, Yeah, well, that's why I think the drug stuff does well on ballot initiatives because the average person's like, yeah, let me do the drugs I want to do. That's not a big deal, but within the political class there's a big revenue gathering apparatus that goes along with it there's a a whole infrastructure of the dea and all these different agencies that make their living off of prosecuting drug crimes there's the prison industrial complex that makes their living off of it um there's a lot of institutional incentive to keep drugs illegal within the government whereas the people don't care we're fine so in those type of issues i think it's better off doing ballot initiatives but for things that are like maybe labor regulations things that are framed as like workers rights or you know, uh, human rights, access to healthcare, things like that. Um, people don't understand those issues. They're complicated. And so putting them on a ballot, I think you're going to get some bad results because people think, yeah, I should have free healthcare. And they don't appreciate the kind of the cost or the difficulty or the fact that nothing is free. You can't have free healthcare. That's a myth. It's going to cause all kinds of other problems, which it has in other countries. Um, so those kind of things I don't think is a good idea to put on ballots. Uh, I feel like if you put $15 minimum wage on every ballot in 50 states, the majority would pass it. I think so. Yes. Now, because it sounds yeah. good. It's it's a feel good kind of thing. It's like, yeah, we all want to make more money. Let's make more money. Yeah. But the the kind of bastiat seen and the unseen, you know, people people see what they see. They see, oh, fifteen dollars an hour is better than ten dollars an hour. I want that. But they don't see all the things that go on behind the scenes that make that actually a bad thing for workers and especially for underprivileged workers. Now, the other one other ballot initiative I'm bringing up is one that we had right here in Virginia because mm. it's kind of an interesting story with it. We passed. Uh, one ballot initiative was that we have redistricting coming up because of the census. And typically it was the party in control gets to draw the lines. Um, and the Democrats currently have control. But the, there was a big push to get this on the ballot before Democrats had control. Ah. And we we're going to make it a nonpartisan control. I think uh, eight of elected officials, four from each party, and then eight non-elected officials will make up this quote-unquote nonpartisan um, committee. But as soon as the Democrats grabbed control and it made the ballot, there was a huge push campaign from the left in Virginia to vote against it now. Oh, OK. But it passed, I think, about 70 percent to 30 percent. So it was an over because the way it read was very like, well, that makes absolute sense. Right. But there near the end there, there was a big push from the Democrats in Virginia to vote against because they now held, held the power, which I thought was very ironic since they started that. Yeah. Well, that's the way it always goes, right? When you're out of power, you want one thing. When you're in power, you want something else. We saw that with the filibuster, the judicial filibuster, where Harry Reid abolished it because he's like, we want to get our judges in. Get rid of the filibuster. And then Donald Trump became president and the judicial filibuster was gone and we got Amy Coney Barrett in. And they're very upset about that. So, you know, 
payback will come and get you. And uh, to oust myself a little bit, I used to say, like, hey, I don't know if I believe in nonpartisan committees. I don't believe in anything could be nonpartisan. So I say, you know what, whoever wins the knife fight of political elections, maybe they should be able to draw redraw the lines but i walked into that voting booth and was like well who has the power the democrats i don't want them redrawing it so i voted for it (laughs) yeah i mean like it's somewhat of a canard to say there's a nonpartisan committee everything's partisan it's like it's not gonna it's not gonna really be nonpartisan. like as much as you say it is everybody's got a bias everybody's got a political opinion and that's going to come through but i don't know i don't have strong feelings about gerrymandering and and redistricting it's like i don't know the constitution says the state legislature gets to do what they want to do um with the elections and the supreme court has basically upheld that you can you can delegate that power to an uh independent commission if you want that's fine okay i don't really care it's not something that i think a lot about i would have voted against if the republicans had power i'll be honest (laughs) yeah (laughs) just because like you know what sure but whatever i mean i'll probably stick with my thing you know whoever wins the the bloody knife fight that politics is maybe the to the victor the spoils politics is just horrible isn't it it's the worst we need to stop paying so much attention to it and start like just living our lives i love i tell people all the time like what's your philosophy and like you know i can say oh libertarian or a classical liberal i like better but i'm like i believe in extreme local governance whatever that is yeah and a global economy i'm increasingly (laughs) using the term individualist for my philosophy because i like it and uh I think that that's kind of the root of all my political opinions is the belief in the the sovereignty and supremacy of the individual, and so like that's one of the problems with democracy is that, you know, it's it's not it's that other people get to choose for you, you know, other people get to decide how you're going to live, and they really shouldn't. It shouldn't be up to a vote, you know, like no one should get to decide how you live. You should get to decide how you live by on your own, and having this democratic process saying, well, 51% get to decide that you shouldn't be able to to drink this drink or smoke this smoke or whatever. Or whatever it is, you know, you shouldn't be able to enter into this contract with your employer. Like, well, just leave it to me. I'm the individual. I'll figure it out. And I really hate collectivism. I really hate kind of viewing people based on the groups they belong to as opposed to them as individuals. And so instead, I, I generally use libertarians. Sometimes I use anarchists if I want to confuse people. But I'm increasingly leaning towards individualist as a like description that. for my political philosophy. Maybe on another conversation we should have, this is, again, probably could be a rabbit hole. Yeah. I agree with you on all that. And the one interesting thing is, like, I think the human person were at first and foremost individuals, but I believe we're also communal. So I also believe there is an importance for not everyone thinks government is community. It is not. Yeah. But there is an important. Government for s- is just the name for those things we do together. Yeah. I no. think Barney Frank said that. Ugh. Barney. I love me. I love that show. But anyways, (laughs) associations. I know Edmund Burke. I'm reading a little bit about him. He talks a lot about the importance of like associations in society. Um, Nisbet, who was a sociologist, talked a lot about it. Um, So I always like the whole human person. We're first and foremost individuals, but we also need community. But it's not the state, despite what the 2012 government Democrat convention said. Right. We all belong to government or some nonsense like that. It's sort of where I depart from conservatives on a lot of things is they uh, conservatives will often say that the basic building block of society is not the individual. It's the family. I think Milton Freeman also said that too. And I'm like, yeah. Well, what is the family made up of? Individuals. Individuals. <laughs> like, I, like the core is the individual. Yeah, I, I don't buy it. So. But I don't want to deny that we're also communal, where we need each other in a yeah. way. No, that's true. Yeah. I think I have this kind of introverted, misanthropic streak in me that is like yeah. I just want to live off in the woods by myself yeah. and be left alone. Uh, so I, I don't entirely agree with conservatives Some days on that. I'm with you on that. Yeah. But it, maybe a topic we'll dive into on another episode philosophically. Definitely. Awesome, sir. All right. Well, we'll see how these uh, these elections continue to go, and uh, hopefully the next four years will be decent.
Hopefully just peaceful and... Peaceful and relaxing. Yeah. yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? I can wish. Probably not. Yeah. Cheers, sir. Cheers. I got drank all my Washington whiskey. I'm proud of you. Mm-hmm.